0: welcome to the improve the news podcast for saturday august 5th 2023 where we separate the spin from the facts i'm adam clark
1: and i'm eric steiner with a look at today's top stories two u.s navy sailors are charged with spying for china
0: putin critic alexei navalny is sentenced to
1: 19 more years in prison Two expelled Tennessee Democrats win back their seats. The world's oceans break record temperatures. A defense review recommends New Zealand boost its military spending. New US migration offices are announced for Columbia. A Trump ally is charged in an alleged 2020 Michigan vote scheme. The UK's National Health Service
0: expands its use of the private sector.
1: Controversy mounts over the LK99 superconductor
0: and malaria-preventing bacteria is discovered by chance.
1: In our top story, two U.S. Navy sailors have been charged with spying for China. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Al Jazeera, Wall Street Journal, CNN, and ABC News. Two U.S. Navy personnel have been arrested in California on charges of allegedly passing sensitive military information to China, prosecutors said Thursday. China-born Jincheo Wei, 22, a machinist's mate aboard the USS Essex, is accused of handing over technical documents, photographs, and video footage of weapon systems and other critical technology used aboard the ships to a Chinese intelligence officer. Wei, who faces four charges, including one under the rarely used Espionage Act, served in the Navy since July 2021 and allegedly began spying for China when he applied to become a naturalized U.S. citizen. In a separate case, Wen Heng Zhao, 26, was arrested and indicted on charges of passing sensitive U.S. military information, including operational plans for a large scale Indo Pacific U.S. military exercise, to a Chinese intelligence officer posing as a maritime economic researcher. Zhao, who served in the U.S. Navy since 2017, is also accused of receiving nearly $15,000 over a two year period for providing blueprints for a radar system stationed on a U.S. military base in Okinawa to China. Both sailors had their first court hearings on Thursday and are set to appear in court again next week. If convicted, Wei faces 20 years to life in prison and Zhao a
0: maximum sentence of 20 years. Thank you, Eric. Here on the show, we like to separate the facts from the narrative spin. Eric just laid out the facts for that story. I'm going to start our first round of narrative spins with an anti-China narrative provided by CNN. These two American sailors violated their commitments to protect the U.S. and abused the public trust to the PRC's advantage. However, most critically, their arrest reflects the PRC's reckless efforts to harm the U.S. as the defender of the free world and to subvert its laws by tapping sensitive military information. The two cases must be rigorously investigated to defend the U.S. against China as the leading threat to its national security. We counter that with a pro-China narrative
1: coming from Global Times. The incident is just the latest example of how Washington is constantly hyping cases of so-called Chinese espionage. The PRC is portrayed as a national security threat, while U.S. intelligence agencies boast about rebuilding their spy networks in China. The U.S. is waging a smear campaign against China's counterintelligence, yet it can't hide that it's a world leader in infiltrating other countries, while mass surveillance of U.S. citizens is widespread and extensive.
0: And occasionally, we get statistics-based nerd narratives provided by the Metaculous prediction community. The nerds think that there's a 20% chance of war between China and the U.S. before 2035. Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org forward slash pod. Take a quick survey and tell us what you think. Now back to the news. Vladimir Putin critic Alexei Navalny is sentenced to 19 years in prison. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Forbes, Guardian, ABC News, Associated Press, and CNN. A court in Russia extended opposition leader Alexei Navalny's prison sentence by 19 years on Friday. A vocal critic of Russia's actions in Ukraine, Navalny is currently serving a nine year sentence on fraud and contempt of court charges. Navalny was found guilty on six counts he rejects as being politically motivated including financing extremism, promoting Nazism, inciting children to dangerous acts, and creating an illegal group. Navalny, a 47-year-old lawyer and politician, and Russian President Putin's most prominent opponent, has been imprisoned since 2021 after returning to Russia following his recovery from nerve agent poisoning. Navalny has been ordered to serve his new prison term in a special regime prison colony, which has the highest level of security and some of the harshest inmate restrictions in the country. Under Russian law, only men with life sentences or those considered, quote, especially dangerous recidivists are sent to these facilities. The special prison sentence will include other stiff measures, including only being able to see family and receive parcels once per year. Following his imprisonment, Russian authorities have cracked down on Navalny's associates and supporters. Many have fled the country while others also have been imprisoned, including Daniel Kolodny, who worked for Navalny's YouTube channel and was charged with funding and promoting extremism and sentenced to prison on Friday.
1: Adam, thanks for the facts. Our first spin for this story is a pro-Russian narrative coming from TASS. Navalny is a dangerous extremist who created an extremist organization and directed his associates to carry out polarizing activities aimed at undermining public security and state integrity and changing the Russian political system. As
0: he has repeatedly violated the law, it's only fair that due process is carried out. that's going to be countered with an anti-Russia narrative provided by CNBC. The Kremlin has disturbingly attempted to silence Navalny and prevent his calls for transparency and accountability from reaching the Russian people for years. This is an unjust conclusion to an unjust trial and shows how judicial harassment and the court system are weaponized for political purposes in Russia. And the nerds from Metaculous
1: Prediction community say there's a 3% chance that Alexei Navalny will become president or prime minister of Russia in his lifetime. That proves something. But, you know, <laughs> I don't know what. Oh, I do not know. That is some weird, wild uh, stuff. Uh, hey, uh, hey, thanks, Bill. <laughs> Adam, I did not, I did not know You're that. you correct, Eric. That's some weird, <laughs> wild... <laughs> okay. In our next story, expelled Tennessee Democrats win back their state legislature seats. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, Guardian, Wall Street Journal, and Washington Examiner. Justin Jones and Justin Pearson, the two Democratic Tennessee state representatives who were expelled by Republicans in April for protesting gun violence on the Tennessee House floor, have been re-elected to their old seats following elections Thursday. Though they were reinstated on an interim basis by local officials, Jones, from Nashville, had to defeat Republican candidate Laura Nelson, while Pearson, from Memphis, defeated Independent Jeff Johnston. Both districts strongly leaned towards Democrats. Jones, Pearson, and their colleague, Representative Gloria Johnson, led the protest without approval days after a deadly shooting at the Covenant School in Nashville that saw three children and three adults killed. The demonstration led to outside protesters entering the statehouse. The ouster of the pair drew national attention because Jones and Pearson, who are black, were voted out of office by the GOP-led House, while Johnson, who is white, barely avoided removal. The expulsion, which one Republican strategist called a, quote, disaster, also backfired on the House majority, with Jones and Pearson raising a combined $2 million through over 70,000 donations for their re-election campaigns. Meanwhile, Nelson raised just $34,000, while Johnston collected under $400. After learning of his impending victory, Jones addressed Republican House Speaker Cameron Sexton on X formerly known as Twitter, writing, quote, Well, Mr. Speaker, the people have spoken. The find out era of politics is just beginning.
0: See you August 21st for special session. Thank you, Eric. We're going to start off with a left narrative spin provided by W.I.O.N. The Tennessee GOP's expulsion vote certainly did backfire as the Justins now have even more influence than ever before. What did they think would happen after they kicked out the two office holders with enough charisma and popularity to bring their constituents down to the State House for a peaceful demonstration? Voters are tired of seeing people shot dead due to lax gun laws and an authoritarian leaning GOP, so the Justin movement is just beginning. The Federalist gives us a
1: Republican narrative. First and foremost, the expulsion was not racist, as Gloria Johnson never screamed on the House floor, let alone into a bullhorn, as her colleagues did. The Tennessee House has a code of conduct for a reason, to prevent mobs like the one summoned by Jones and Pearson from disrupting the business of lawmakers. Whether these Democrats regained their seats or not, the GOP should be proud that it stood up to
0: the woke, unruly mob. And the Nerds of Metaculous have an opinion. They think that there's a 0.2% chance that the Second Amendment, as written and in force on December 13, 2018, will be successfully amended or repealed before January 1, 2025. The world's oceans break record temperatures. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, News, Euronews, NewsTrack, Guardian, and Scientific American. According to the EU's Earth Observation Program, Copernicus Climate Change Service, the average surface temperature in the world's oceans hit a record-breaking 20.96 Celsius, or 69.73 Fahrenheit, this week. The previous record was set in 2016. Scientists expect the temperatures to continue increasing in the coming months, as oceans worldwide are usually warmest in March, not August. The fact that we've seen the record now makes me nervous about how much warmer the ocean may get between now and next March, says Dr. Samantha Burgess from Copernicus. Just last week, the Mediterranean Sea recorded its highest ever surface temperature at 28.71 Celsius, or 83.67 Fahrenheit. Likewise, water temperatures off the Florida coast made headlines after hitting over 38 Celsius, or 100 degrees Fahrenheit a temperature seen more often in hot tubs than oceans. Scientists are warning of the implications rising ocean temperatures can have on the rest of the planet, from impacting global weather patterns to damaging marine ecosystems.
1: Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. We begin our round of spins with Narrative A. It's coming from The Guardian. Record-breaking ocean temperatures are just the tip of the iceberg and a warning sign of the chaos to come. We are quickly moving into uncharted, dangerous territory because of the amount of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases released into the atmosphere out of greed and consumerism. Something has to be done now for our planet to
0: survive. And the New York Times has a narrative B. Climate alarmists have been predicting the world will end because of climate change for decades. Doomsaying doesn't get us anywhere and focuses on the wrong issues the end of the world isn't coming anytime soon, and the catastrophic framing of climate change does far more harm than good.
1: As expected, we're hearing from the nerds for this story as well, coming from Metaculous Prediction Community. They say there's a 50% chance that the total damage incurred by climate change in the 21st century, as measured by its impact on GDP, will be at least 10.98%. We had a, We had a stat just like that a couple of days ago.
0: Yeah, I remember how much of an it, how much of an impact it had on me. Oh, it did. Yeah, I can tell you haven't slept. I haven't been, been, been able to get a, a, a moment's sleep. My goodness, <laughs> really? <laughs> uh, Twenty uh, the, the GDP that is measured as measured yeah as measured by the uh, impact uh, on GDP. Uh, oh my God, no, not I know. Oh jeez, that's crazy. Yeah. And I I, know. I finally got a night's sleep last night. I, well. I I'm going to be up again for a week.
1: According to a special review, New Zealand must boost their defense spending. Here are the facts as agreed upon by US News and World Report, ABC News, DW, Responsible Statecraft, Voice of America and Reuters. On Friday, New Zealand introduced its first-ever national security strategy alongside the first phase of a defense review, calling for more spending on its military and the strengthening of ties with countries in the Indo-Pacific. Presented by Defense Minister Andrew Little, the review said that the island nation must boost its military budget from approximately 1% of the nation's GDP to nearly 2%. The analysis further concluded that New Zealand's defense, quote, is not in a fit state to respond to future challenges, adding that its primary function is currently to provide aid during national disasters or peacekeeping missions. The national security strategy references China, alleging that it's becoming more assertive and more willing to challenge existing international rules and norms and is using economic coercion to reach its goals. According to Little, replacing Navy frigates and patrol vessels is among the urgent reforms needed. He also added that the nation has seen a spike in domestic threats such as misinformation, cyberattacks, and terrorism. The review also emphasized the importance of stronger ties with Australia and other partners in the region, including the U.S. Wellington banned nuclear-armed and nuclear-powered ships from its waters in 1984, meaning no U.S. Navy warships could enter its territory.
0: All right, thanks, Eric. We're going to start with an anti China narrative provided by Radio New Zealand. The wording, the overall tone, and the substance of the new national security strategy represent a historic shift. China's aggression has been and continues to be a major concern as it elbows its way into the Indo Pacific, forcing New Zealand to take the necessary steps to become combat ready. This review is long overdue.
1: And the pro China narrative comes from Global Times. New Zealand has maintained warmer relations with Beijing than many of its Western allies amid rising global tensions. Prime Minister Chris Hipkin's recent visit to Beijing showed that he's interested in stabilizing and improving relations with China. However, this latest analysis may be the first sign that Wellington has lost its ability to think for itself and is now echoing the
0: U.S.'s strategy toward Beijing. U.S. migration offices are to open in Colombia. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Al Jazeera, U.S. News & World Report, and BNN Breaking. Colombia's foreign ministry announced on Tuesday that two offices for migrants hoping to reach the U.S. would open in the country as part of a safe mobility initiative between the U.S. and Latin American countries designed to curb dangerous migrant passages to the U.S., along with a third office in the city of Medellin that opened August 1st. The offices are part of a six-month exploratory phase. In June, the U.S. announced migrant processing centers would be open in Guatemala. The Safe Mobility Plan was formed in April between the U.S., Panama, and Colombia, and was designed to stop migration through the dangerous Darine Gap between Colombia and Panama, which has seen a record number of crossings this year. Migrants from Venezuela, Cuba, and Haiti who legally arrived in Colombia before June 11th can apply for potential entry into the U.S. The foreign ministry says, adding they will not intervene in any migration decisions made by the U.S. The moves are part of a larger push by the U.S. to try and curb illegal migration, with July seeing a 30% jump in apprehensions at the border. A new policy requires asylum seekers to apply in countries they travel through first before being able to apply for asylum in the U.S. Adam
1: just presented the facts, and the round of spins begins with a pro-establishment narrative coming from National Immigration Forum. The safe mobility offices are going to be a vital tool in stopping dangerous migration to the southern border. By allowing migrants to apply for asylum in the countries they are already present in, it could curtail loss of life and hamper human trafficking operations that smuggle migrants to the U.S. Other Latin American countries are interested in the plan, as it could help lessen the migration crisis gripping the continent. And
0: Newsweek has an establishment critical narrative. While the initiative sounds good in principle, the reality on the ground is that requirements for the safe mobility program are so stringent that the average migrant cannot even think of applying for asylum in the U.S. Those without financial means, a sponsor in the U.S., or the appropriate documentation are shut out of the program, excluding those who need the most help. This program is window dressing to mask America's continuing disregard for migrants.
1: A Trump ally has been charged in an alleged 2020 Michigan vote scheme. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Associated Press, Detroit Free Press, Al Jazeera, M Live, and Bridge, Michigan. Stephanie Lambert Juntila. A lawyer and an ally of former President Trump was charged on Thursday with accessing, tampering with, and undue possession of voting machines in the state of Michigan following the 2020 presidential election. The charges come only days after Republican lawyer Matthew DePerno and GOP State Representative Dare Rendon were also arraigned on Tuesday in connection to the case. The Office of Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel has accused Trump's allies of plotting to access voting machines from across the state, the charges have been brought by Special Prosecutor D.J. Hilson, having petitioned to convene a grand jury. Nessel named all three last year as part of an investigation into a plot to access voting machines. Nessel herself defeated DiPerno as she was reelected as the state's attorney general last year. All three have been released this week on a $5,000 personal bond. Juntila's lawyer, Michael J. Smith, has motioned for a change of venue and has stated Juntilla's intent to sue Hilson for malicious prosecution. Hilson has announced that no other individuals will be charged in the case, despite further people being announced as suspects last year. The charges against Jutila, DePerno, and Rendon are punishable
0: by four to five years in prison. Thanks, Eric. As you can imagine, this is going to start some politically motivated narrative spins. The first one's a Democratic narrative provided by CNN. Trump and prominent Michigan Republican figures are facing the consequences for repeatedly pushing baseless conspiracy theories. After their ham-fisted and meritless attempts to undermine the 2020 election, these Trumpist Michigan officials are getting what they deserve. We follow that up with a pro-Trump narrative coming from
1: the Michigan Star. There are clearly two sets of laws for the left and the right in America and Biden's Department of Justice is actively targeting Trump and his allies as he poses the greatest threat in 2024. To retain power at all costs and to destroy a political rival, Democrats are weaponizing the constitutional foundations
0: of the U.S. And this story is going to wrap up with a nerd narrative that says there's an 80% chance that prediction markets will say Donald Trump is the most likely Republican nominee for president on January 1st, 2024. And that's according to the metaculous prediction community. Are you are they saying that there's an 80% chance that other people will predict that Donald Trump is going to be the Republican nominee? Yes. We're predicting that other people will predict this. Yes, exactly. We're not totally predicting that, No. we only think there's an 80% chance that we're predicting this. Right. I, but does that does that make their chance less likely that they're going to do it if there's only an 80% chance of a prediction that they're going to predict? Uh, right. <laughs> yeah, that's that's right. <laughs> The UK's National Health Service expands its use of the private sector. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Telegraph, BBC News, Guardian, and Daily Mail. In an effort to clear record National Health Service's backlogs, the UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is planning the largest expansion of private healthcare sector involvement since the Blair era. To start, private firms will be asked to operate eight community diagnostic centres, or CDCs, and carry out over 400,000 scans, tests, and checks per year. As ministers hope relaxing the rules for issuing contracts will give more flexibility to local health leaders, the private sector, which already handles hundreds of thousands of treatments and appointments per year, says it can provide an additional 30% support more than it currently does. The latest figures show 7.47 million people, which is more than one in eight, or on waiting lists, the highest number since records began in 2007. Though the government expects the move to bring down wait times, Health Minister Maria Caulfield has said that the total number is likely to rise a little bit more before they start to come down. The government has pledged to open 160 CDCs by 2030, with 114 having already conducted 4.6 million tests since 2021. The sector will also be used for its data to help identify where they could take on more NHS patients, as well as train junior NHS staff. With physicians already asked to ensure patients get five providers to choose from, by October, anyone who has waited more than nine months without obtaining an appointment will be told they can switch to a provider with a shorter wait time. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. We begin our round of
1: spins with Narrative A coming from The Guardian. The government's failure to expand the public health sector long predates COVID, and its expansion of private involvement hasn't quelled the crisis. Despite public opinion showing a strong preference toward the NHS and opposition to the unaffordable private health industry in the U.S., both Labor and the Tories have only paid lip service to their constituents while moving steadily toward a private sector takeover.
0: That's followed up with a Narrative B provided by Sky News. The problem with a completely public health sector is that doesn't motivate innovation. Both liberals and conservatives should agree that the NHS, while maintaining its core principles, should allow the growth aspect of the private sector to assist in strengthening the institution as it plummets in quality and capacity. Privatize shouldn't be a dirty word. It's what's needed to dig the UK out of this hole. In
1: our next story, controversy mounts over the LK-99 superconductor. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Time, Bloomberg, Washington Post, Yonhap News Agency, New York Times, and Financial Times. LK-99, a material discovered by Korean researchers last month, reportedly capable of conducting electricity at room temperature and pressure, has touched off a global race to replicate and verify the groundbreaking superconductor. Superconductors are materials that conduct electricity without resistance but can only be achieved in extremely low temperatures or under high pressure. They are critical to various everyday applications, from magnetic resonance imaging or MRI machines to the European Organization for Nuclear Research's Large Hadron Collider, or CERN. On July 22nd, two separate non-peer-reviewed papers were uploaded to Cornell University's pre-print server, by Sukbae Lee and Jihoon Kim. These papers purported that LK99, a lead-copper compound, was a superconductor that could create a room-temperature semiconductor with no loss of energy. However, on Thursday, the Korean Society of Superconductivity and Cryogenics determined that LK99 is not a superconductor, adding that the duo has also refused to submit a sample for its test. Meanwhile, researchers at Southeast University in China have claimed that they had measured zero electrical resistance in their experiments on LK99, a sign of superconductivity. Skepticism mounted as the results were obtained when LK99 was cooled down to minus 260 degrees Fahrenheit or minus 162 degrees Celsius. Superconductivity is notoriously difficult to observe in a lab setting. But if LK99 is proven to be a room-temperature superconductor,
0: the discovery could have massive implications. Thank you, Eric, for the interesting facts on that story. We're going to start with the narrative A provided by the Daily Beast. Unfortunately, this would-be breakthrough is a dud, as every attempt to replicate the experiment's results has been lackluster. Many professional physicists have found the research to be amateurish and improbable. However, this has kept the media and financial markets from running away with a dubious science story. Until proven otherwise, LK99 is a flop. Narrative B is coming from
1: Washington Post. The LK99 saga has been a fruitful and inspiring moment for science. Everyone from backyard researchers to Ivy League teams has been attempting to test the original claims, sparking a scientific frenzy the world has not seen in some time. While the initial claims may or may not be debunked, the world looked at science in action and can build on this research to continue the superconductor hunt. The implications from manufacturing to computing to transportation could be enormous.
0: We're going to tie this story up with a nerd narrative provided by the Metaculous prediction community. They say there's a 2% chance a room temperature and ambient pressure superconductor will be used in a commercial application before 2025. And our final story today is about a study that says bacteria could stop malaria transmission. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Financial Times, WION, and GEO. Scientists with GSA Pharmaceutical have reportedly discovered a naturally occurring bacteria that prevents mosquitoes from Developing the malaria parasite, with research suggesting it could reduce mosquitoes' malaria load by 73%. The TC1 strain of Delftia when introduced to mosquito colonies in a controlled environment, did not harm the mosquitoes. It did, however, produce a neurotoxin known as harmane, which inhabited parasite development. GSK researchers had discovered the anti parasite properties of TC1 by accident after noticing that they were unable to infect some laboratory mosquitoes with malaria. The culprit was TC1, a microbe present in the gut of the mosquitoes. In collaboration with John Hopkins University, GSK is exploring the practical applications of the discovery. Further research has found that mosquitoes can ingest harmane orally, preventing malaria development, with experiments continuing in Burkina Faso. Hailed by GSK as an entirely novel method, the mosquitoes tested did not transmit TC1 to humans they bite. Mathematical modeling with Imperial College London suggests that the use of TC1 over three years would reduce clinical cases of malaria by 15%. Malaria causes 620,000 deaths globally as humanity struggles to effectively fight the disease medically. Vaccines are in the early stages of rollout in Africa, and mosquitoes are growing more resistant to chemical treatments.
1: Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. The round of spins begins with Narrative A coming from LBC. The news regarding malaria-destroying microbes is stunning, as the world has a chance to finally defeat one of the world's oldest killers by circumventing lengthy clinical trials for medical interventions and the bioethical minefield of mosquito gene editing, this method could eliminate malaria without interfering with ecosystems. We should monitor these
0: developments with excitement. We're going to wrap up our podcast today with a narrative B provided by Voice of America. While this is a promising development, it could be all for naught if the world doesn't grapple with the climate crisis. There's good evidence to suggest that climate is directly linked with malaria incidents and a warming planet could lead to an explosion of cases. We need to prepare for the malaria onslaught before it's too late. ¶¶
1: Thanks for joining us for the Improve the News podcast for Saturday,
0: August 5th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team that extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Want to know more about Improve the News? Visit
1: our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.